Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our series entitled, The Power of Christ in a Pagan World. In our message today, we'll examine an issue that is relevant for all of us who attend church. So let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Most of us have heard of the following scenario. It's Sunday afternoon and a family is enjoying roast pastor for lunch. You know, I've been a pastor for many years and I suspect that I've been had for lunch on more than one occasion. But in case you want to know, I'm okay. My self-esteem has not been shattered. I'm not secretly bitter. And oh yes, Jesus still loves me. Now, some time ago, I saw a humorous cartoon. A pastor was lying on a psychiatrist's couch as the therapist sat beside him with a notepad in his hand, and the pastor was saying, I keep having a most disturbing dream. I have the members of my board of directors on the floor begging me for mercy, and then I suddenly wake up, and I can't remember how I got them there. Well, I think that's funny because, as we all know, it's seldom the pastor who has the directors on the floor begging for mercy. It's, it's most often the other way around. Well, way back in 1998, James Dobson wrote, We estimate that approximately 1,500 pastors leave their ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention with their local congregations. I've been unable to verify those numbers or whether they're still true today, but I do know this. A great many pastors have been fired or pressured to resign or left the ministry every single month. Of those who entered a ministry with me when I was young, a very few are left. A great many pastors claim they have no close friends, feel burnt out, report severe stress, anger, and even fear. Most work more than 50 hours a week. A great many claim that they would leave the ministry if they had another option. And a great many claim the ministry has negatively affected their families. And all that, brothers and sisters, is not good. But is it all bad? Well, in fact, I find a great many pastors who are deeply delighted with the ministry and love what they're doing, but there are those who reach midlife and are overwhelmed with the burden of meeting expectations, both internal expectations and that of the congregation. And here's what one pastor told me. He had asked his associate to preach on a given Sunday and was overwhelmed and pleased at how well this young man had handled the text and preached to the glory of Christ. And as he was silently giving thanks to God, a man walked up to him from his congregation and said, Pastor, you'd better look over your shoulder because I think that young man might soon take your job. And suddenly the holiness of the moment was broken, and in its place were feelings of anxiety and envy and a lack of certainty. Why do we so quickly hurt our leaders? You've been reading 1 Corinthians, and the expectations of the church in ancient Corinth must have been overwhelming. In chapter 1, we read that the congregation was deeply divided over leadership. Some preferred Paul, others Apollos, and still others Cephas. And a final group might have preferred no pastoral leadership at all. And we saw in 2 Corinthians 10.10 that Paul gives us an insight into some of the criticism that he had received. He's weighty in his letters, but unimpressive when face-to-face. To a large degree, this attitude toward their leaders was due to the church's lack of spiritual maturity and their lack of confidence in the power of the cross. But when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1-5, Paul faces the issue of the evaluation of leadership head-on. Let's read the passage. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small matter that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Well, let's see if we can break this paragraph into a number of smaller units. First, from verse 1. Would you notice that Paul instructs the Corinthian church and us how to think about Christian leaders? This is how one should regard us, writes Paul. When he uses the word us, he's no doubt referring to himself, to Apollos, to Cephas, and most likely also other leaders in that church who taught the word of God. The point here is not that Paul is describing his apostolic leadership, but that he is describing the teaching leadership of what we might call today a teaching or a preaching pastor. So that's what he has in mind. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, when you think about Christian leadership and those who preach and what you might expect from them, you should think about two images. The first, servants of Christ. Now, that word servant is not the Greek word diakonos. We probably would have expected that word. I mean, diakonos is the word from which we get the word deacon. To be a deacon is often thought of as an office in the church, but it's to be a servant, one who cares for people's necessities, one who might care for the upkeep of the church, or one who makes sure that the ministries of the church are taken care of. It's the most common name for someone who serves. Paul chooses not to use that word here. Instead, Paul chooses the word huparetes to describe himself. Historically, the word referred to an under-rower or the lowest of galley slaves, but in Paul's day, the word was used somewhat differently. It could refer to a household servant or even to a junior officer who assists his superiors. One way of putting this is to say men should regard us as subordinates. You know, one instance of the use of that noun is found in Luke 4.20, where the word is translated as attendant. That is, after Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah in his synagogue in Nazareth, he gave the scroll, says Luke, to the attendant. The man is a subordinate who fulfills his duty to another. And Paul wants to think of Christian leaders that way, subordinates, not of men, but of Christ, who perform the duty Christ assigned to them. The second word he uses is the word stewards. Most of us recognize that word because most Christians have heard sermons about, yep, stewardship, which, as we all know, is about the proper use of money. But in Paul's day, a steward was thought of as an estate manager. You know, estate managers were given the responsibility of overseeing a household budget, making purchases, managing accounts, allocating resources, collecting debts, and any other item that dealt with the running of an establishment. They were to act only as instructed by the estate owner. In other words, they were to manage an account that belonged to another. But please notice that in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul does not say he is a steward over the household of God as if he is managing the accounts of the church, but that Christian leaders operate as stewards of the mysteries of God. This means they were to oversee the teaching and explaining and training the people of God in the mysteries of God. I suppose another way of saying this is that they were to preach the full counsel of God. You might remember that Paul uses a phrase like this when he meets with the elders of Ephesus. In Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, he describes his attitude to his own ministry. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul thinks that because he properly taught all that is in the mystery of the revelation of God, he is not responsible if they reject it. He has, as a subordinate of Christ and as a steward of the mysteries, taught it all. 
That's the task of the minister of the gospel. In contemporary terms, the task of the preaching pastor is to proclaim the revelation of God in Scripture. Now, from my vantage point, that means to go through the text, verse by verse, make its meaning plain, help God's people to apply that text to their lives. And that, says Paul, is how you should regard us. That's our task. Now, having explained that, Paul moves the discussion to the next level. What are the requirements of the Christian leader? And to that, Paul gives a very humble answer. In verse 2, he says, It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. The explanation is quite simple. I and every other Christian leader are required to do that which the master of the house, Christ, has assigned for us to do. Of course, behind that statement is the obvious inference. How are the believers in Corinth to evaluate their ministers? They obviously have been evaluating them. More than one Sunday meal included roast pastor. We know that they criticized Paul for not being as dynamic as he could have been or as they would have liked, and it must have been quite a blood sport. The church is divided about it. And wow, that story keeps being repeated in our day as well. But that leaves us with a question. How are we to evaluate our pastors and teachers? And let's be honest, we're all doing it. And to that, Paul gives the answer. Evaluate them on the basis of whether they've been faithful in declaring the mysteries of God. Now, that's the very thing the Corinthians had not done. Paul is deemed as less eloquent than Apollos. But the key requirement of the steward is that he is faithful to his charge, and the charge is simple. Preach the word. Make scripture plain in such a way that the people of God will know it, trust it, understand it, believe it, obey it, and be able to study it themselves. If you need to evaluate them, evaluate them on that and on that alone. I think John MacArthur has said it well when he said, God supplies his word, his spirit, his gifts, and his power. All that the minister can supply is his faithfulness. Does he do what God called him to do? And to that, Paul will now become personal. And when we come back, we'll see how he applies that to himself. When it comes to thinking about the role of our Christian leaders and pastors, It's so important to have a right understanding of who they are and what God calls them to do. We need to be on guard against all the wrong ways that we tend to judge those in leadership. And after the break, the Apostle Paul sheds more insight into how to evaluate our leaders in a godly way. John 1.12 reads, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, this verse expresses the heart and mission of Back to the Bible Canada. We teach the Bible, but for a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. Whether on radio, podcast, mobile application, Truth in Life magazine, Truth in Life Today, or our young adult ministry in doubt or the many who tune in to listen to Laugh Again. Every program and resource serves to deliver God's Word so that those who hear would be saved. Thank you for embracing and supporting this mission. Your gifts make all that is done through Back to the Bible Canada possible. And please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $465,000. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.
As Paul writes these matters, he is aware that he is being unfairly judged. He's aware of what's being said. You know, in his second letter to this very church, in the entire 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he takes up his defense. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us. Paul is aware of Christ's assignment. Let's reread Paul's defense to those who are criticizing his ministry. Verse 3a reads, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, at the outset, we might read this and wonder if this is just a bit of bravado here. It really can't be sustained. It's a small matter that you judge me. Listen, I can tell you, as one who has known plenty of criticism, it hurts deeply. You know, the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, we all know it's simply not true. Words wound deeply. Slander, unjust criticism, untrue judgments are the life of every leader, and the Christian minister is not immune to this. The most frustrating element of all of it is that most Christian ministers will tell you they don't know how to respond to all of it, and more, they're incapable of defending themselves even when they know they're right. So can Paul possibly mean that it is indeed a small thing to be judged by the Corinthians, people whom he deeply loved? I think a part of the answer to this perplexing statement is found in the words of Christ. In John 5, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And Jesus is saying that one of the reasons people fail to believe is that they long for the approval of others. Other opinions are more important than that of Christ. You know, for what it's worth... That's how I understand Paul's statement that it is but a small thing to be judged by the Corinthians. He doesn't mean that their words have not wounded him. But if he were to compare their judgment to the judgment of Christ his master, their judgment is but a small thing in comparison to Christ's judgment. In the end, he will not answer to their faulty assumptions. He will answer to Christ. Theirs is a small matter. Now, ultimately, every one of us needs to come to the same conclusion. If, for instance, you have difficulty sharing your faith because you fear the judgment of others, you have not seen matters for what they are. The approval of God is worth more than the entire population of this world, and therefore to receive the applause of heaven makes the applause of men seem like a small thing indeed. It is quite something when God's people finally grasp that, and Paul says, I, by God's grace, have grasped it. Okay, but what of the person who listens to no one and claims to be listening to Christ alone? Isn't there always a danger of self-deception? If a Christian minister will not listen to anyone, what then? I think all of us can agree that there is a great deal of value even in listening to our critics. But Paul is not painting himself as a loner who cares nothing of the opinion of others. Let's listen to the entire sentence. But it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And then hear what he says next. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Here's a little truth that all of us already know. All of us, without exception, tend to view ourselves with rose-colored glasses, magnifying the faults of others and minimizing our own. That's where most criticism and judgment of others come from. Paul says, I'm as prone to self-absorbed thinking that deflects blame to anyone else as you are, and yet Paul is not lacking in self-reflection. 
he can truthfully say, I'm not aware of anything against myself. He's not saying he's not aware of the slander that his enemies have tried to paint him with. He's only saying that he recognizes the difference between slander and truth. But please also notice that he's not saying that he's been sinless. Only Christ was sinless. You know, as for Paul, we get some insight into some of his mistakes in ministry. We can't be sure of what actually happened in Acts 15, where Luke tells us that the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was so sharp that the two men separated and never worked together again. We do know the disagreement was over whether they should include John Mark in their ministry, and we also know that Paul changed his mind on his original assessment of John Mark when in his very last letter, that is in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 11, he asks that John Mark be brought to him, for he is very useful to him. Now, Paul is not contending that he has not made mistakes or that he's not ever sinned. When he says he's not aware of anything against himself, he means with respect to his ministry as a subordinate of Christ and as a steward of the mysteries of God. I have not failed, as far as I know, in the assignment that God has given me. I have represented Christ as I ought to have. And then he adds, but my feelings on this matter is not what justifies me. No, I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the end of the day. But Paul's not telling this to the Corinthian believers to show them that he has a clean conscience. He's trying to get them to know how to treat and evaluate their leaders. And so he ends with verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, please don't misunderstand what he writes. When pastors are found to be living immoral lives, they should be let go. There is no place for an adulterous pastor or for one who steals from that which belongs to God. Paul is not saying that we should turn a blind eye to sin. When Paul says, do not judge, he sounds very similar to Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 7. Do not judge, lest you be judged, said Jesus. I'm fully aware how that verse has been abused. I mean, you know, someone's committing adultery and they say, well, you have no right to judge me. Well, as a matter of fact, yes, we do. In John 7, 24, Jesus said, judge with right judgment. So what does Paul and Jesus mean? Well, notice again how Paul expresses himself. The Lord, he says, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. We are not to judge those things we are incapable of knowing or of judging. Let me provide an illustration. I am capable of judging adultery. I am not capable of judging the internal attitudes or motives of the adulterer. Those things are known by God alone. These are the inner thoughts, inner intentions, inner motivations that form the basis for many of our decisions. In the end, when Christ returns and all Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all the inner motivations we bear will be brought into the light. Paul speaks of what he calls the hidden purposes of the heart. I wonder, how many of us are aware of the damage we do when we assume we know the hidden purposes of anyone's heart? How quickly we say, oh, he did that because he was envious, or she's so self-absorbed, or that's why she insulted that person because she's so arrogant, and that's why he didn't listen. Now, hear me. Charges of arrogance and envy and hidden purposes deeply rooted in us are known by God alone. These are the inner attitudes of the heart. These are the things we might assume we know, but in fact, we do not. 
We might rightly tell someone, I think you just hurt that person with what you said. But that would be a right judgment. But to say, you hurt that person because you're always arrogant is a judgment of the heart that you don't know. And whenever we claim to know the inner recesses of another's heart, we're playing God. And the real God doesn't like it. He tells us to stop. And Paul relates this to the Christian leader. Don't you judge the inner motivation of their hearts. You don't know them that way. You should rather judge them on the basis of whether they are doing what Christ called them to do. Are they carefully and accurately proclaiming the full counsel of God? How much peace would be wrought in a local church if we but did that? In the end, Paul writes, each man's praise will come from God and not from us. And so you want to know how to treat your leaders. Think about them as servants of Christ and not as your servants. Know Christ's requirements for them and forget yours. Don't judge them beyond the boundaries that Christ has set. And then, let's be a healthy church. John, thanks for today's message. It's a great word and and something we need to recognize. Uh, But one of the things you said I want to mention again, you said, but the key requirement of the steward, the pastor, I guess, is that he's faithful to his charge. And the charge is simple, preach the word. And I think sometimes in, in the chaos of all the activities of the church and all the demands we put on our pastors, do we take them away from that function? Yeah, I think we do. I think there are many things that conspire against a pastor to spend the time that he needs to know the word well, study it well, and be ready to deliver it in such a way that God's people will know for certain that God has spoken to them. You know, church is not about our opinions. It's about what God has said. And so I think the word is for pastors, take the time. Uh, For church boards, release your pastor to do what God himself has called him to do. I mean, release him from some of the meetings that he might have to attend to, some of the counseling sessions that someone else can do, and let him be a master in Scripture and declaring the Word of God. I think there is no greater need for the church today than to have that part settled. And so I think this is almost a prophetic call from the Word for us to do that thing. Well, how often we're prone to judging those in the church for wrong reasons, or in the other extreme, to say that any judgment is wrong. It's clear that we need to recover a biblical basis for these kinds of healthy boundaries when it comes to judging our leaders. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Dot C.A.